0: Listening to Shoot It Now, your weekly podcast about indie filmmaking and big budget films, with award winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another Shoot It Now podcast. My guest today has won an astonishing seven Oscars. That's right, seven Academy Awards, and for good measure, has received 17 Oscar nominations. His first Oscar came in 1992 for the movie Terminator 2, Judgment Day. His other Oscar-winning films include Jurassic Park, Titanic, and Saving Private Ryan. He is a master of sound design, best effects and sound effects editing, and shares something in common with film editors, and that is highly undervalued but incredibly talented. Gary Rydstrom, welcome to Shoot It Now.
1: Oh, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here.
0: Well, I suppose, Gary, it's a little harder to argue the point about highly underrated with your Hall of Academy Awards that you've won.
1: There are people who do work in film that are kind of behind the scenes. We don't get much recognition. And the secret is, other sound people will tell you, maybe you think so too, but I think sound benefits from not being thought of too much. So we can do these kind of sneaky things, sometimes subliminal things. We can play with an audience's emotions and they have no idea what we're doing, partly because they don't sit around all day thinking, I wonder what the sound guys did on this movie. It fits my personality, but I kind of like the person behind the screen doing stuff that the audience doesn't even realize is happening.
0: I had a look at your seven Academy Awards. I then wanted to compare you to the actor who has won the most Academy Awards, who is Catherine Hepburn, four Oscars, and across her career, she got 12 nominations. I didn't bother to look at the rest of the technical category because you are probably (laughs) leading that field in a landslide. I'm interested in asking you this question because you are in a unique position having been to the Oscars so many times, and that is, what do you think it is that makes the Oscars so coveted, prestigious, and revered, and how different has it been for your experience stepping up onto that stage every one of those times, seven times now, to collect each
1: of your Oscars? I sometimes say that I would love to win three more Oscars because then I could open a really, really cool bowling alley. But <laughs> the, the Oscars, I mean, I grew up loving the Oscars because I loved film. And so the Oscars is kind of the public face of the Academy and the film business. And, you know, it got me excited. I tell you the truth, not just winning awards, but seeing all those people. And I have to say the Academy does a really nice thing. And they're still doing it by having people like me come up on television and accept an award for sound. Other other award shows don't have the sound people or other technical so-called people get up on stage during a TV show. So the Academy makes an effort to uh, recognize the different aspects of, of filmmaking. And, and I will also say the Academy works really hard at making sure the awards are special. They're very, very much into the rules and to, uh, you know, making people take it seriously. And it's not always right. The right Films don't always win, but they try really hard. The Academy membership tries really hard. I know people take it seriously. So as long as that keeps going, I think it's good for the film business. It puts a good face on on film.
0: Now, it's also important to mention that you're also a director, having directed the 2015 film Strange Magic with a huge budget. It wasn't your first film, but certainly your biggest to date. How are you able to make the switch from sound design guy to directing?
1: Well, you know, the first directing offer I got to do was through Pixar. I had a I had a long-standing relationship with Pixar doing sound for their very first films, and so I knew that company well and it was always part of their development of films. And they were nice enough to offer me a chance to direct. So the first directing I did was a short for uh, Pixar called Lifted. And if you, anyone sees. Scene lifted it's really a short about sound mixing not overtly but you have you know alien trying to abduct a human and doing it badly sitting in front of what will look familiar to uh, people who are sound mixers sitting behind consoles it's a, a ridiculously huge console with uh, you know 10,000 toggles on it all of which have no markings on it so you have no idea how to use it I felt like I could direct in some way because sound is is about storytelling. It's about timing. It's about you know sometimes being funny, sometimes being sad. It's all the things that I I evangelize that sound can do, which is to help tell a story and help generate emotions. I mean that's what directing is too. So I arrogantly thought that I could slip into it, but I had a lot to learn. And the thing I discovered in directing that I had no experience with in sound was working with actors. And you know. That was uh, turned out to be a wonderful part of uh, of directing in animation. It's working with animators are like working with actors, and then the voice actors and Strange Magic. It was so wonderful for me to discover how fun it was to work with actors. Very deep into my career, but that was my favorite part.
0: Well, you say deep into your career, it doesn't happen. I can't think of a, a sound designer who has stepped into direct a film of such a large scale. Often it can be, in some ways, I guess, a little bit lonely doing the the sound design. Suddenly you are exposed to the whole creative elements with the with the cast that you talk about, which is probably the aspect that really just livened everything up for you.
1: Oh, I yeah, I it was huge. I mean, Strange Magic is a film that I took over in production for many years before I took it over. And my job was to kind of finish it, so it was like taking over uh, something that had, had a lot of work done before I showed up. What I found in both—I uh, made two shorts for Pixar and then Strange Magic for Lucasfilm—and the, the funny thing I found was I just relished learning about and getting into camera and lighting and editing and all the. I mean, I went to film school, so I you know I still have that. That bug and that that interest in all aspects of filmmaking. But what I found each time was when it got to the mix, the thing that I'm supposedly really good at, uh, let's say I lifted, I did my own mix for my own short and I screwed up. I was so bad at it. And the reason I realized later is because I had no director to kind of look over my shoulder and look to for, you know, I think a director's job is often to have that, um, the bigger picture so that you don't lose what the movie's about and trying to do and sometimes in sound you get lost in the weeds because it's such a detailed job. So I was mixing lifted and thinking, you know, everything else was, was kind of went smoothly for me working with animators and lighting the camera and I get to the mix. I had to do it three different times because I kept screwing it up because I had no director to turn around and talk to. So I I realized the importance of a director by being a director.
0: So George Lucas had this film Strange Magic for many years. How did that, all happen with George Lucas coming to you to say hey Gary being tapped on the shoulder do you want to direct this movie
1: <laughs> magic, which was originally called primrose in-house and uh, I'd heard about it for years I mean, and it was a project that George Lucas had started and worked on a sort of a fairy tale musical and it's gone through different iterations and different filmmakers and that kind of stuff. And the timing of it, which is both sad and happy for me, is that I, I was developing a feature film at Pixar that got shut down. So when that got shut down, I went back to Lucasfilm to go back to my sound career. And then, you know, within a not too long a time, I get this, you know, hey, you worked at Pixar. Why don't you, <laughs> why don't you take over this animated film we've been having uh, uh, trouble with? They can't quite finish, and so. I thought I was going from my Pixar animation directing career back to my sound career. And then, you know, it turns out Lucasfilm had this half-finished animated film that they asked me to take over. And it was great. I mean, it was, to be honest, it was a film that if I were to propose something from scratch, I probably wouldn't think of fairies and I probably wouldn't have done a musical. But I always remember hearing stories about how Francis Coppola, you know, Godfather was kind of a cheesy book and, you know, he he did it and then made one of the great films of all time. So I thought, oh, um, I don't think I made one of the great films of all time, but it was great to both direct a feature and to direct a feature that that was something I inherited. So the musical aspect and the singing of songs, we had Alan Cumming and Evan Rachel Wood and and Maya Rudolph and great actors and singers. It was so much fun that I joked at the end of it that if I ever direct another movie, it has to be a musical. I'm not sure about the fairy part, but the musical part was really fun. And um, I never would have had that experience had they not uh, kind of looked around Lucasfilm and said, oh, there's somebody with some animation experience. Why don't you take this over? So I, I'm grateful for the experience, I'll tell you that. So
0: we as filmmakers on day one of any shoot, there's a lot of apprehension. Have mm-hmm. we done the checklist? Have we got everything right? But yeah. with something like this for Strange Magic, massive budget, a massive amount of moving parts, day one how nervous oh very i was very nervous
1: you know because it's you know sort of (laughs) i'm coming into a crew that didn't know me and they kind of midstream there's an art department and editorial and music department and and they were all kind of they've been working on this for years so i was kind of the the new guy having to uh, try to you know shape it into something that i thought would really work what was good for me was let's be honest animation is actually closer to post-production than production animation uh you have that kind of nitty-gritty control that i'm used to in sound post-production and from the early days when i went to film school i think i realized early on that production being on a set uh is scary to me because it's you know it's chaotic and it's a lot of pressure because you're in the real world you got a real crew and you got to sort of you know got to make decisions fast and go animation is is very akin to uh sound because you control every aspect along the way and you're essentially doing one long post-production job so yeah it was it was uh it was scary and the other thing we had to do was <laughs> interesting historically as i took over the film when lucasfilm was an independent company and then not too long into me taking over the film disney bought lucasfilm that's actually when it got scary because now we were essentially making a disney animated film in a weird way and that's that's a much bigger world so we, mm-hmm. we had to go and pitch what we were doing to the disney executives and get their approval so i think the scariest day was when disney bought us and we had to kind of get them on board with what we were doing
0: Okay, so let's go back a little bit. Tell me about the story of you at USC in the late 1970s and early 80s studying film production. And one day a job offer was pitched to you by a professor asking if you wanted to work for George Lucas's sound division, Sprocket System.
1: And I I say that uh, it's what is probably true. I think I was the last class that went to USC cinema, not because of Star Wars, because I started in 77. Star Wars came out that summer before I started school. And then after 77, people wanted to go to USC cinema because of George Lucas and Star Wars. And then I I got an undergraduate degree. And in the most boring way possible, I stuck around for a master's degree, which is in the same department, not a very uh, rounded education. Because I was scared of, I didn't, you know, the film business is a scary thing to uh, try to find a job. And then Ken Mura, who was a sound professor at USC, who had maintained a close relationship with George Lucas over the years. And he was the one that recommended Ben Burt as a sound guy for Star Wars back in the early 70s, mid 70s. So once again, uh, Lucasfilm went to Ken Mura and say, who you got that uh, we could hire. And at the time, you can imagine, this is 1983, Jedi. Hadn't quite come out yet. There was no place that had more of a mystique, and was, you know, for anyone in film, you know, Lucasfilm, you know, uh, Skywalker Ranch didn't exist yet. But Lucasfilm, what a what a place! And so it didn't take long. I, d- I really, literally, got in my car, drove up to Lucasfilm, and you know, pretty much started the next day. It was uh, such a great opportunity. So, and it was a great time. It was a, a small group called Sprocket Systems then. Ben Burt was, you know, king of sound. The play's already had, you know, George Luke's already history of, of great films and great sound with Walter Murch. And uh, it was the best place at the best time for me. So, you know, that's so much of our careers are based on those lucky breaks and happenstance. So that was mine.
0: And at USC, you didn't really have sound on your mind at that stage. So tell me what you were really interested in when you first went to USC.
1: The great thing about the USC cinema program to this day is that you you have to learn everything it's you don't specialize really i mean over years you can start finding your niche but you're kind of forced to do every job on a film crew so i did everything i always you know i always thought i wanted to write and direct like everybody else but the, the thing i fell in love with when i went to usc was film editing i thought film editing was incredibly fun and i'd done sound editing and i thought that was magical too putting sound against even bad student films there was something magical about bringing it to life with sound. I had this opportunity, Sidney Pollack, a a connection of mine, Sidney Pollack was making a documentary about Roberta Flack. And he hired me to, you know, for cheap to cut this documentary, which is, that was my big break. And then what happened was Dustin Hoffman had the original director of Tootsie fired and Sidney Pollack left LA to go to New York to shoot Tootsie and and abandoned the Roberta Flack project. So my my film editing career stopped immediately. And then shortly after, Ken Muir asked me to go work in the sound department at Lucasfilm. So I I tell people, I tell students when I talk to film students, you you know, don't have a plan. You don't know what's going to happen, what opportunities come up in your career. Um, And when, you know, when they come up, recognize them and grab them when they come up.
0: So the editing really hasn't left you, though, because you've edited your current short that I believe is currently in post. Firstly, tell us a little bit about the short and why you've made it. And then maybe a little bit about the the editing process, because I get the sense that you could have very easily have wound up being a film editor.
1: Oh, I, I, I love film editing, and I think I always loved film editing, and I haven't really done it. I'll tell you, the, the only times I did film editing during my sound career was for the Academy Awards. For a while, anyway, they would have certain movies get invited to what we called a bake off, and then you would take your movie and cut it into a ten minute reel, like a show off reel of your of your sound work. And I loved cutting those things; that was really fun. What I'm doing now is a, is a Philharmonia Fantastique, which is one of these days when the pandemic lifts, will be a a live event with an orchestra, and then our movie plays on a screen above the orchestra, a combination of animation and live action and uh, synchronizes with a live performance. And I, I cut that that was and it was a combination of cutting live action stuff that I I shot and and animation, which is cutting storyboards. People uh, sometimes don't appreciate how film editing for animation is a especially fascinating. And I have to say difficult thing to do because you're not cutting from head to tail of a shot to the next shot. You're cutting internally to shots to try to to express what the action and the motion and the storytelling will be. And then that becomes the guide for animators. Uh, And I knew enough about that having worked at Pixar with editors who did that kind of editing. So, you know, Philharmonia Fantastique is a great opportunity for me both to direct animation again, but partly to save a hell of a lot of money, become my own editor.
0: Okay, let's have a look at sound design. Uh, Sound design is a critical, compelling component that is not only essential to a film's success, but has the ability to add structure and suspense. Sound elevates and takes us to another place, and the nuances in sound design is the same as 10 different film editors arriving at a different position to anyone else. Sound design, I find to be a mysterious, intriguing, intangible thing that can change a film completely. But I want to come back to structure. Can you tell our audience, Gary, why and how good sound design is used for creating
1: structure? Oh, that's a really good question. I I think people think of sound design, including a lot of filmmakers, as you just make a bunch of interesting sounds. Uh, You know, so you think of each sound by itself. But sound design is actually how sounds relate to each other, both at the same time, but then over time in the movie. So, and it's not just creating interesting sounds, but it's creating the the sound of the movie. And I remember uh, when we did Terminator 2 with James Cameron, and he would, um, you know, sometimes out of frustration because he didn't like uh, the way the sound was going, he would grab a piece of paper and he would draw like a graph. And uh, the graph had like a, a peak and a plateau and a dip and a and a, and a and a rise, a slow rise, a fast fall, that kind of thing. And then he was trying to have us shape the sound. So part of how we add structure to a scene or to a movie is to have an ebb and flow. You know, I, I think of it as a, a contrast of uh, just like just like a good musician, composer, orchestrator sort of builds. I think a Beethoven. You can learn more from listening to a Beethoven symphony about sound design for movies than Pretty much anything else. It's so beautifully um, modulated and shaped, and you have you know builds and 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 peaks and and low, long buildups, and that's that's part of the structure of a film is how you know how how the audience is taken through the emotions. And too much of the time these days, especially in action films, essentially uh, the filmmaker will crank it up to eleven and play it that way for two and a half hours, and it it doesn't work. So, in addition to storytelling, I mean, we're we're definitely trying to. Set up mood, scene, setting. You know, make the story, make your eye go where it should on the screen, guide the eye to what's important. All those things that are also structural. But I think one of the things that sound does is it gives you this experience, much like a symphony does, over a long period of time that has a variety of of feelings and emotions to it. It Has a shape. That's what I learned from James Cameron, and to this day I think about sound from movies in a visual way, in a uh, in a graphic way. And it, it, it was like a, an epiphany when he just drew a scene on a piece of paper and I went, oh, I get it. And so, you know, you can you mean a lot of things by structure. It's a really good question. But that one of the main things a structure involves sound with is uh, shape.
0: And one of the key tricks of sound is the ability to see with our ears it happens all the time, yet people are not aware of it happening. It's a manipulation. It's part of the storytelling. And why is this such a powerful way to fuse into a story?
1: Well, there's a, and, and this happens to me all the time, where I remember I remember working on Ready Player One, a Spielberg film from a couple of years ago, and it was so visually dense that sometimes I couldn't even see what was going on. There's a great car race scene in that movie which I love, but it's incredibly dense in terms of story and and visuals. There's a psychological thing happens if you place a sound on an an action, visual action, the audience will put the two together, if they're meant to go together, and then see the thing you want them to see, and Spielberg was always good at saying, I want the sound to guide the eye. And you can get away with visually dense uh, scenes, you want to guide the eye visually as well, but sound can be such a component for guiding the eye uh, in a scene as it goes. And then it's just that magic of uh, sort of, you know, I, when I was in film school, we were taught about guiding the eye, you know, cut to cut, and where the audience is looking and sort of it's like a magician trying to, you know, have you look over here while they do the card trick over there. Uh, a lot of that happens visually in film, but sometimes filmmakers and even sound people ignore the fact that sound, we have to guide the ear just like we guide the eye. And um, the movies these days, which are becoming so incredibly rich visually, sometimes too rich, but they become so rich that, you know, we're trying to make sure that the audience is looking where you want them to look.
0: And you have worked with a lot of established filmmakers, as you said, Steven Spielberg, which you were the sound designer on for The Post, which is a great film actually to drill down on all the layers of sound that you created in that film. I heard you say that with a filmmaker like Spielberg, you are less likely to go off on a tangent and experiment because he is so clear with his messaging. Which way, though, do you prefer to work? Is it more in a precise way or in a let's discover mode and an exploration mode of unearthing different options?
1: I like to even on the Spielberg films, I like to try things and the post is full of, you know, just of the natural things about setting up the world of uh, New York and Washington, D.C. and how they sound different in the the era of the early 60s and printing presses and, and uh, news offices, that kind of stuff. I did a lot of crazy long um, segues, audio segues, and, and trying to connect different parts of the movie that way. With Spielberg, I love the way he works. That we work together because he doesn't dictate upfront exactly what he wants. So in, in a way, he's letting the sound people experiment. But it's the movie that's telling us what it wants. His movie making to me is so clear that you can tell what he's going for. Isn't that? Sadly, this isn't always the case. But moment to moment in the scene in the movie, you can see what he's going for. And so my job is to. To make that work, you know, as best as as possible, and he's the kind of director that doesn't uh, want to see all the details as we go for months and months. He pretty much waits until we get to the final mix and he hears it all together. And if he's the greatest combination of enthusiastic when it works, even if it's not something he's ever heard before, and honest when it doesn't. So what he does for me is he's a backstop. So I feel like I can try some somewhat crazier things, and I certainly have. And then he's a great backstop. Like, no, that. That's not, that doesn't work, but this does. So I love that way of working. There is another way of working that is more, it's kind of a director's school of, I, I need to be involved in uh, approving every, every sound item that goes into the mix. And then once it's all together, it'll be great because I approved every individual thing. And, and as I said before, sound is such a, it's so much about context. So it's about how sounds work together and how they work in the course of the whole movie. And I like Spielberg's approach because he he really watches it in context. He's not going to give me notes out of context.
0: And the mood of a film like The Post, which is period, it's a busy newsroom, a lot of movement in the film. How many layers were you dealing with on a film like The Post?
1: Well, these days, I mean, I think of layers in terms of premixes. So these days, effects, premixes, will do, you know, a dozen, you know, and they're not always going at the same time. In the post, you know, if you think about it from the sound editing point of view, every newspaper office scene will have a premix of typing, a premix of actually of distant typing, a premix of close typing, a premix of close phones, a premix of distant phones, a premix of wallets of the the people there, a um, premix of the teletypes in the back room, uh, doors, heart effects, that kind of stuff. So it's all broken into these... Uh, miniature or or focused elements that then blend into something. I remember on that film, Spielberg always wanted them busier than I think I initially made them. If you listen to All the President's Men, one of the great things about that movie still is the newsroom, and it related to the Post. It was the Washington Post and All the President's Men, although our newsroom was the previous building, which is an interesting thing. Somewhat older equipment and All the President's Men was in a building that the Washington Post had moved into in the Watergate era. But listen to how loud the ambiences are. Even, you know, it, a lot of sound mixers will say dialogue is number one. You have to make sure you hear every word. And it's true. Uh, and, you know, got all the president's men you want to hear Newman and Redford. And I heard that that's what the newsrooms were really like. They were so loud. So that was one of the things that Spielberg kept pushing for in the post was more of that. Uh, just denser typewriters and phones and, and chair squeaks and off screen doors and, uh, you know, people yelling and ripping paper out and all that kind of stuff. You know, I did Private Ryan for him, which is same thing. we build up a war movie by, you know, cutting every bullet by and bullet hit and, and gun kind of bit by bit until you get this cacophony. And the newsroom in The Post is kind of the, uh, you know, it has the equivalent, you know, you so build up these thousands of details into something that feels all together. You know, I, I've said many times in my career these days that, that the modern world is not as exciting sounding for a sound designer as, as the past. So newsrooms—you if would do a news story, newsroom story. Now the newsrooms with computers and stuff—boring, uh, you hmm. know, electronic phone rings that kind of stuff. But the the, the late fifties, early sixties—my God, with you know actual bells on the phones and and um, you know women in high heels, which is an important part of that that movie. I wanted the women characters to really stand out with their high heels and endless teletypes and typewriters. What a great, probably an annoying thing to live through, but from a sound person's point of view. I love movies that take place in eras that sounded so cool.
0: I just loved what you did with that newsroom and everything that sort of folds into it. It it definitely had that effect. That sound was really almost a little bit of like manic in a way because that's kind of what that story was all about. It was a, a manic situation and you were bringing all those intense flavors and tones into that whole mix, which, which really worked. And you mentioned... Uh, Saving Private Ryan. I mean that beach scene and what you did there. Again, it's a similar type of thing. The underwater sequence of those bullets going through the water. Sound design, uh, particularly for both of those films, plays such a big, big part of the takeaway that you when you leave the theatre.
1: Going back to you used a great word, manic, for the for the newsroom. That's that's the way I think too. It's not just being realistic about typewriters, but even in and it's something that you don't think has an emotional component for sound. It always does. It always does. And so, you know, the choice of, of the type of typewriters there, there are clackier and more kind of tense sound sounding old typewriters and there are smoother sounding, you know, sort of pre-selectric kind of typewriters, whether you hear that. and choices about what you cut in and how much is exactly what you said. If you want the scene to sound manic, you you edit these supposedly mundane things so they sound manic. If you want them to seem kind of smooth and orderly, you cut them to be smooth and orderly. There are moments in that movie where they kind of quiet down because something's happening in the newsroom they want to pay attention to. So then you have this kind of cacophony quieting down, and that's equally important. You know the the battle scene in Private Ryan. You always have to think of an like an adverb or an adjective for these scenes for the sound. And for me, Private Ryan was in addition to being very point of view, it was even though we controlled every element of the sound, it was chaos. And the, the what was scariest to me about the opening of Private Ryan, if I'm thinking about it as a, a soldier experiencing storming Normandy Beach, is that the randomness of death, just the randomness. It's it's random, and it. Um, so then you're building a track, so it's articulate, and you hear guns and bullets and all that kind of stuff. But there's kind of a kind of a Russian roulette quality to it. There's a there's a you don't know what's what's going to happen next. It's, it's when you said Matic, it made me think about that. Every scene, you should come up with a word like that that's descriptive of the emotion you want the audience to get from the scene.
0: And even though our eyes are drawn to the things that we are hearing and you can manipulate that, to pull that off has to be done right. What are some of the mistakes when this process goes wrong and doesn't work? Can you give particularly our indie filmmakers a couple of examples when it misses the mark?
1: when they miss the mark it's usually because people are trying to do the literal i don't mean to uh, take it out on poor robert redford but i remember spotting uh, the movie river runs through it with robert redford and he had very little time we sat at a cam and we watched the movie and he was his job was to you know talk about what he wanted for the sound and he would point out all well, you know that he said well there is that there's an old car going by and there's a door and yeah, i probably got a little cocky and i said well you know I, don't, I can see all those things. I want to know what you want to say that isn't on screen or that you want to say in the scene that I can help you with, that isn't literal. So, I'm sorry, it was Quiz Show, because Quiz Show, which is about the Quiz Show scandals, Charles Van Dorn. So then he got a twinkle in his eye, as he often does, and he says, oh, I want you then, for the scene where Charles Van Dorn is deciding whether or not to cheat on the Quiz Show, I would like you to come up with a morality tone. i like you to come up, if you want to do something non-literal, come up with a sound for getting inside Charles Van Dorn's head and, and experiencing the, the angst of a moral decision. So, And you know what? I actually, I love that. That's cool. That's a non-literal literal way of using the soundtrack. We tried some things and there's stuff in Quisha I think that works as sort of getting inside Charles Van Dorn's head. But the mistake people make is to just do, you see it, you cut it. And there's two levels that are wrong with that. One is you don't cut everything you see because, as I said earlier, you want to guide the ear, you want to guide the eye. So if, if one thing's more important than the other, you cut that and you diminish or don't worry about the stuff that's, that's secondary or tertiary. But then you have the whole off-screen world. Private Ryan made use of things you don't see at all but is telling you what's going on off-screen. You got the Alan Splett approach with David Lynch movies, which is telling you what's going on off-screen, which makes no literal sense at all except for as a psychological thing. So the mistake people often make with sound is not to make use of the full potential of sound to get inside the heads of characters, which is what the beginning of Private Ryan does. We talk about, we don't know Tom Hanks yet, but when he loses his hearing in a a shell shock moment and his hearing disappears and he looks around and can't hear anything properly, we are getting inside his head. You can get inside the character, you can make the audience feel something that isn't necessarily on screen, but is important for the telling of the story. And I find that sound is at its best when it's telling the same story the visuals are telling it, but t- from a different angle. And if those two angles come together, I mean, Hitchcock movies are great for this. Kubrick movies are great for this. Use of music, use of sound effects and Rear Window or Clockwork Orange, sometimes so disconnected on the, from the soundtrack to the visuals. But it's telling, it's, make, it's the same movie. So uh, the biggest mistake I think people make with sound is to be kind of mundane and literal when there's potential for uh, expanding into emotions and psychology.
0: And similarly with tension, you mention Hitchcock. We know that sound has the ability to dramatically heighten tension and to elevate it. Often, in a way, a filmmaker had no idea it was going to land there. But tension can also go horribly wrong when the beats and the rhythm of it isn't executed right can you give us some examples of what not to do that could cause something to
1: go wrong oh that's really interesting so and hitchcock of course had that famous example which was uh, you know whether you have a shock of a bomb exploding or two people talking around a table or you have the long shot of that you show the bomb and you have them talking and you have the tension because you know something is under there that could go off so Tension in movies is often about holding back, uh, you know, so sort of anticipating um, by by not sort of brutally hitting people over the head with stuff all the time. And I, I think a lot of it comes down to what you're asking. What it comes down to is that shock versus versus tension thing, which is sometimes you get the the visceral response from an audience with you know mini shocks and, and other kind of things along the way. But God, the anticipation works so um, beautifully in sound. There is. This is a really subtle example, but it's interesting. And, and it's a James Cameron idea. So there's a scene in um, Terminator 2 where Linda Hamilton's character is trying to talk the psychiatrist into letting her out of the mental institution. and She's very controlled. You know that she's got this inner, she's angry as hell, but she's on surface, she's, she's very controlled. And he, he wanted to sort of, we took the dialogue and actually made it softer as the scene went just artificially softer and softer so the audience kind of leans in kind of like something's what's going on what's going on then gets softer and then when she explodes she reaches over the table and grabs a psychiatrist and essentially beats him up and that was more effective because we had done this lead into it um punch drunk love is another it's a scene another movie where adam sandler's character is got this inner inner turmoil this inner anger but this outward calm and So the soundtrack between John Bryan's music and and what we did with ambulances and, and weird sounds and stuff, it just kind of feel like there's you know you get this bubbling you know sort of something's something's wrong. You just you got to. It, it was tricky in that one. We wanted to get a sense like he could explode at any moment, but to get that sense, that tension of he could explode at any moment, you don't need much. You just need little sort of subliminal sounds, some subliminal voices in his head that you can barely hear. You know, he kicks over a kid's toy and, a, and a, he goes to see his sister's kicks over a kid's toy and the kid's toy, you know, the, the piano, toy piano is kind of detuned. So it just feels off and odd. Uh, so we're doing little things to kind of build the tension. The other major element, the major film genre that wants tension are horror movies or scary movies. And um, it's, I think if you find it to be very, if you're making the film, if you have control over it, it becomes very powerful to hear things without seeing them. Uh, I did uh, The Haunting, which is a remake of The Robert Wise Haunting, which is a great example of a haunted house movie where you barely see anything, but you hear all sorts of weird stuff behind the door. And that built a huge amount of tension. And and Jurassic Park does the same thing. You hear dinosaurs before you see them. And that builds tension because, you know, we're used to as human beings using our 360-degree hearing to to listen for predators and danger. So we're wired to... Feel like something's wrong you know or, does, or the absence of sound in a classic uh, you've got a jungle movie where you think there might be a lion out there a tiger you have your insects come to a stop and then the absence that contrast the absence of insect sounds you could do if you have like the apocalypse now scene where the tiger sort of attacks out of nowhere you can do it either by having the jungle ambiences getting louder and louder and louder until the tiger shows up and maybe that ramps up tension, or you can do the opposite. You sort of get the ambiences quieter and quieter and quieter. Change, of whatever it is, but change is a good way to, uh, to just realize something is happening. Something's going to happen. And so you're right. It's about patterns and shapes and rhythms. And, uh, you know, the essence of sound is change. So how you use it is, is where you find tension.
0: And we know that sound is emotional. We know from music it has the ability to stir emotions. It can transform us to our youth, take us to a memory forgotten. And the right sound for an emotional scene can soar it to a lofty height that without it, the scene never reaches. And as filmmakers, we are all searching for that elusive emotional response. And I guess like a film editor who has the ability to save a scene in the cutting room, a sound designer can do that with sound. And there are layers of taking a scene down a tunnel to a higher payoff but equally, there are also these tunnels that don't work. So perhaps, once again, explain to our indie filmmakers some of the traps to watch out for in those tunnels that don't
1: work. I think the first rule and what makes every filmmaker good, and it's something we have to either learn or pay attention to, is you have to turn off your brain, if you're the director or the sound designer or the editor, you have to turn off your brain as that. And you have to watch a scene as an audience. It's pretend you haven't seen it before. And that's a lot of the ways you discover what's working, what's not, is if you can learn that, that psychological technique of turning off all the details you understand about everything that went into the shot or the scene or the sound, or whatever it is, and just say, okay, let's watch this like an audience. If there's one thing that, that filmmakers make the mistake of uh, for anything, a scene that you want in a certain emotion for, it's almost always the lack of contrast to me. Lack of contrast can come from, which it often does, overusing music. So the music then ends up flattening out a movie and a scene because it never stops, even if it's great music. Listen to a lot of Spielberg films or David Lean movies, and you'll see, you'll be amazed about how much of the movie doesn't have music, which makes the music work better. It's a contrast, so, so I, I know the feeling. Filmmaker, I get the same thing. You get eager to ah, we got to make this work. We got this is going to be really great. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be happy. It's going to be uh, suspenseful. It's going to be nostalgic. Whatever it is, and you just kind of feeding the you know, like shoveling coal into it every second in a scene or a movie. But you just let it let it sit and and find moments of contrast. Either music, no music. Uh, loud, soft, uh, happy, uh, you know funny, serious. They, you know those moments of contrast, I find contrast such a simple concept, but it's one of the engines of filmmaking. It's certainly an engine for sound. And so if you if a scene's not working, first try to look at it like an audience and try to use your gut because film's a gut level thing, it, whether it's working or not. And if it's not working, just see what you can clear out. editorially picture editorially just just streamline and just keep contrast as as a concept in your brain and watch it through again
0: yeah that's a good answer and sounds sounds from strange sources there are a million different unique sounds found in unusual places perhaps Uh, Give us some very accessible sounds that our filmmakers might not have thought of, because sometimes there can be this whole overthinking of how to create a sound when, in fact, that sound is a lot more accessible than one might think.
1: Well, partly out of my own laziness, I have used a lot of really normal sounds, so-called sounds I could even find around my house for abnormal things this is something I, I learned in many ways from Ben Burt who a lot of his sounds from star for Star Wars were created by you know you know recording the back of a television set for the lightsaber or you know hitting on a, a guy wire for a local antenna for lasers um, he used a you know a Chihuahua for the rancor beast and Jedi I love normal things you can find around you you know sometimes you think you've got to find the most exotic thing but there's I remember I did Casper which is a ghost movie and I was at a bank, my bank, and I accidentally pushed the, the revolving door the wrong way so that the rubber grommet on the bottom of it scraped, this glassy scraped and made the most ghost, beautiful ghostly howl. So I I went back with a recorder, you know, they didn't exactly shut down the bank for me. That wouldn't have been safe, but I was trying to record it while they still had the people there. I remember, you know, every time I pushed it backwards, it would make this great ghostly howl. And then, you know, the security guard would run over and say, don't do that. And that's kind of annoying. I mean, for that same movie, the rice steamer that I had gotten for a present, an electric rice steamer, made this sort of howl. we didn't put any water in it, it made a weird howl. I did a, the most ridiculous version of that is on Terminator 2, the T-1000 morphing sound when he, the liquid metal T-1000 morphs through things. I got, you know, was feeding my dog and just opened the cylinder of this that awful dog food that is kind of gooey and muddy and held the can upside down and it slithered out of the out of the can and made the perfect combination of of liquid goo and metal. And that became the T-1000. I give lectures about sound to people. And the point of that example is that not only is that, a, you know, that's a sound you would, if you have a dog, it's a sound you hear every day, but in the context of the movie, it sounds like the T-1000. But the other point to me is that the sound costs 35 cents and the visual effect costs, you know, $500,000. So there is a, there you know, the real world around us, I mean, I was just down in LA doing a, a sound job, staying at a, at a long-term rental, and that had the noisiest washer and dryer. So the washer has this kind of wind-up sound that sounds just like a flying saucer. So I recorded that over and over again and in some future movie that has a flying saucer or spaceship, which I'd had in the past. But you keep your ears open for these things. And the golden rule of sound design to me is that once you separate the sound from what it is, An audience is not gonna know that that's a Frigidaire washing machine or a can of dog food. But in the context of the movie, you mentioned the the bullets underwater in Private Ryan, the watery rip of the bullets underwater was actually from a sound I made recorded for River Runs Through It for the sound of fly casting over a river. and When you pull the, the line, the fly line off the surface of the river, it makes this wet rip. So a great example in River Runs Through It when Brad Pitt is fishing, it's a beautiful sound that makes you want to go to Montana. The same sound, pretty much, you know, as it was in Private Ryan, is the sound of impending death, you know, through heard through, you know, the otherwise soft, uh, seemingly safe cocoon of underwater. So context is everything. That means that the world, even the world around you, is full of interesting sounds. That if you just, you just find them, record them, separate them from what they really are and place them to the movie, that's, that is a magical thing. And that's what I love about sound designs. You can you, you just that combination of the sound ripped from its reality. And I'm bad sometimes at giving lectures about sound. Ben Burt's great at this. He remembers where every sound ever came from that he ever recorded for Star Wars or Raiders. I don't remember half of them. And once they're ripped from the reality, they just exist as what they are. And then you say, well, that sounds like a flying saucer. And, and it's a flying saucer. My washing machine, another washing machine became the sort of the maglev vehicles and minority report. And that was my Bosch washing machine. That's what's fun. I love that part of sound design. It's, it's a matter of discovery, ripping from reality and finding a repurpose.
0: And recording something now. When you consider the sound recording equipments when you first started to the devices now available at relatively small price tags, the access to filmmakers for sound has been a game changer, especially over the last 10 years. We often say just get out and film it, pick up the camera and shoot it. But taking the time to go out and record something might not be as much fun, not as sexy to many. But if people take the time to think about what they want to discover with unique sounds, that can change their perspective to sound and create opportunities in their filmmaking that just opens up as a completely new opportunity with all this dimension of sound.
1: Oh, yeah. And if you think about the technology of when I started to record professional quality audio, uh, we would take a Nagra, which is a wonderful machine, heavy as hell. And we even had special shoulder pads made so that we wouldn't kill ourselves lugging this Nagra around with the special Dolby cards for noise reduction and everything else. It was very heavy. And, you know, and and then we evolve into DAT recorders. And then these days, and it's not the highest quality, but what I love about it is it's instantaneous. My phone... You can have different apps that record right onto your phone. You could plug in an external mic or or not. But what I like about that is if you run into something and it's cool, you record it because you'll discover things as you go. And half the time that I've done recordings for movies, I go out expecting one thing and get something completely different. I remember recording for Colors, which was a you know a gang movie, LA gang movie directed by Dennis Hopper. And I went around with off-duty cops in Los Angeles and supposedly in the worst parts of town to try to record, I don't know, bad parts of town, whatever that sounds like. And I got the best good humor truck recordings. So, you know, you never... <laughs> You never know. I went to the San Francisco Zoo to record the big, scary lions and tigers. And, the, and one of the most amazing sounds I got were the cute koalas, uh, which I had no idea the koalas would look cute, but they don't sound cute. And they made a lovely T-Rex element. So when you go recording, you have to be open to anything that comes up along the way or unexpected things, because that's that's where you'll find something, something cool. And I actually find it one of the most fun. And it turns out in sound design to me, it's the most important step in sound design, because I don't create things with artificially i don't use a lot of technology to reshape sounds in an electronic way i like to find cool original sounds manipulate them as little as possible and they still sound real and organic so that means you go out into the world and you collect and when you are recording things and these days my goodness you know the really high quality digital recorders are the size of a you know an old sony walkman you take it out in the world and discover things record for hours if you're into sound and what the world sounds like around you, there's there's really nothing more fun.
0: Sound recordists will be listening to this podcast. Gary, I'd like to get you to highlight some of the common problems that you've encountered over the years that have been problems that you have had to rectify and put right. This, of course, is relevant to directors as well, who may put different pressures on a sound recordist during the shoot uh, through what is happening on set. So can you give us some of those
1: examples? Sure. I mean, production recording recording on the set is immensely important, and every production recordist will tell you that they have to fight for time we have, on all the Spielberg projects, we go through a, a thing where they, they, the first day or two of the shoot, they'll send us the recordings and we, we can hear things in the, in the studio that maybe they don't hear on the set. And when they've made changes to the type of lavalier characters wearing the the costuming, like and, on and Lincoln, they actually changed costuming in such a way so that it could get the microphone uh, in a, in a good place that didn't get Russell and in that case, you know, the, the, the leverage we had was, look, you got Dan- Daniel Day-Lewis acting uh, as, as well as anyone's going to ever act. Let's make sure we don't have to. <laughs> no one likes ADR. Let's not replace him later. Let's capture the moment. And that's the job of the production recorders is to capture the acting and to isolate it from the surrounding. I mean, they're, they're, you want to isolate it from these days, from each, each character as much as possible so that we get multi-tracks of the characters and we can do amazing stuff in the mix. Uh, so it's, it's about getting clean dialogue. And we just did West Side Story for Spielberg and Todd Maitland as the production recorders, one of the greatest. I re- remember loving him on a Quiz Show. He did a beautiful job on Redford's Quiz Show, and he did an equally just astounding job in West Side Story. And, and I know that something as simple as a lavalier mic, which you'll sneak into the costume of the main characters, he chose a different mic for each actor because he listened to how it affected their voice so it's a it's a matter of of capturing the main job is to capture the acting capture the voice acting so listen for that in mind uh you're not capturing the set you're not capturing the, the surroundings you are capturing the actors and um good production recording is kind of the first step if it's noisy and uh you know you have to spend a lot of time in the mix adding noise to make it smooth then then i don't have as much room to play with with ambiences so noisy production dialogue then becomes an anchor for the rest of the track. So clean, warm, human recordings of voices. That's what it's all about.
0: And of course, as a sound designer, you work closely with a director, but another important creative is the composer. And you worked with a lot of established ones. So let's say that you're on a new project and working with a composer for the very first time. What are some of the steps that you work through for creating a a fluid working relationship with a composer.
1: Well, ideally, and it doesn't happen as often as it should, but ideally with composers, it's nice to share things. One of the things that happens is tone. I mean, what's you know, what's the tone? Both the composer and the sound designer are going to pull from the tone of the movie. The other important step that uh, is often done badly and uh, in movies, even high budget movies, is spotting of music. And as I said before, contrast is so important. So where music comes and goes, is almost as important as the music. And I, I try to take part in that uh, when I can about, you know, not, not just out of ego, like let me take this part of sound effects only. I think it, you know, there are moments where it just feels right for music to come and go. The best collaborations I've had, John Bryan who did Punch Dunk Love, I and mean, I went actually to the set and visited. he would sit on the set with a, with a keyboard in his lap and he was actually starting to compose music while watching them shoot the movie is amazing i could send him sound effects we were recording of things from the set or taken from the production or things we were doing send it to him i remember there was a there was a harmonium that shows up at the beginning of the movie that barry egan gets and he kind of rips the rips tape to kind of see that that's a harmonium or kind of fix up the harmonium with this packing tape so those rips i would give to john bryan then he would put them in the music so that score had a lot of sound effects and the sound effects in that movie we were able to mimic some of the themes he had written early on for the music. So there was a real collaboration, like one thing knew what the other was doing. The other great collaboration I had was on Jurassic Park, amazingly, and John Williams composed the movie while at Skywalker Ranch for reasons he's never done it since, but it was beautiful to have him there. He was in a room near mine and with the piano and he would write the score. So he could come and listen to what I was doing with, you know, velociraptors or T-Rexes or something. And he could see the if I was ahead of him, he could see what frequencies I was using. What, you know, what's the, you know, is the raptor in the, the, the cello and, uh, and, and uh, flute range or is the T-Rex? And you know. So he, would, he, he orchestrated and wrote, I think, at least partially with in mind what the dinosaurs would sound like. For random reasons, I was just reading about King Kong. Murray Spivak was the sound designer, not called it then, the sound guy on King Kong, and then Max Steiner, the composer. They talked about, at the time, this is 1931, how much they worked together. So when you wanted to hear the King Kong roar for the first time, it was important. Max Steiner would sort of build up to it with the music and then get out of the way. And if the music was really going to carry something, then then Murray Spivak would simplify the ambiences of the track to get out of the way. And they, they worked hand in glove, which is astounding. From 1931, sound had really only been going full force for three years. So that kind of collaboration should happen more. But if you think about it, the composers and the sound designer, are, are we, we got the same frame we got the same canvas so you have to work together to some degree because you're going to clash unless you spot it well and think about orchestration and pitch and frequency well Uh, then a lot of your time in the final mix is going to be trying to untangle the clash between music and sound effects
0: actually you brought up a really good point because the composer often is like handing off the baton to the sound designer so in other words what you just said build up build up the the music and then the baton gets passed off to the sound designer to then just ramp it up further
1: I, you said one of my favorite metaphors for sound mixing which is a baton handoff i think i think of mixes as relay races all the time you can't hear too many things at once you just can't music sound effects dialogue so, I think of it as, a, you know, run as fast as you can, take your moment. It could even be a three-second moment, or it could be a 20-minute moment, but if it's your moment, oh my god, you know, the beginning of Private Ryan is a 20-minute sound effects moment. So we, you know, no music at all. This is great. Designed by Spielberg and John Williams to be that way. So wonderful. You get to the end, you're, in, you're out of breath, and you you, just, you, know, you hand the baton to John Williams, who takes it, and it lets the audience feel an emotion based on the previous 20 minutes. That baton handoff is a wonderful, I should put a photo up in my room of a baton handoff from a relay race, because I, I, mixing and, uh, and relay races are very similar.
0: And have you ever worked on a project when something has changed really late in the final mix with a composer, and then something was taken
1: out and replaced last minute? Sure. I mean, I've sadly, I've been on a few films where they could replace the composer <laughs> at the final mix, oh. and that's, that's never fun. You uh, you kind of do it as best you can, and then a new composer. Right? The first Mission Impossible I did to Brian De Palma, they, they threw out the score, essentially the first day of a final mix. We mixed anyway to temporary score, and then had, it had to be remixed later on with Danny Elfman's score. That's the radical thing. But music has moved around, comes and goes. And that's one of the things we like to do, I like to do on the stage is to, you know, just move things around, change out different cues. Uh, and, and every time you do that, it's so intricate, the relationship between music and sound effects and dialogue, that if you change out a cue, you think, oh, I'm just changing the cue, that should be fine. But it affects everything else from the level of the Foley to, the, to w- what kind of ambience you put behind it because of the music. It's amazing to me. Everyone thinks it's pretty easy, swap in new music, you're done, but it's, it's not the case. One of the things that happens to me that I, that always frustrates me is I've prepared a scene to work with no music, say, all these intricate ambiences and details and things. But then in the final mix we we have music there, say some beautiful John Williams music. And then the director will say, Okay, this the music's great. Now I want to hear it without music. And of course, when you take the music out, the sound effects are kind of they're gonna sound lame because they've been they've been prepared to work with the music. So then you kinda of have to beg for just give me an hour. Just give me an hour. I need to put everything back in that uh, that works uh, with the music but yeah that part of the job of the final mix is to experiment moving music taking it out putting it back in it's uh, it's a big part of it
0: and the final mix process which is the smoke and mirrors part of the mixing sound to a whole new level I was very fortunate to have the experience with my first film of doing the final mix in the same studio as Lord of the Rings and Avatar with the same mixer. And I can tell you from my perspective, it is a wizard's act of what they are doing on the board. This is another area of filmmaking that is somewhat taken for granted. How much do you look forward to the final mix? And is it one of your favorite parts to your creative inputs?
1: Well, the good thing about that is the first time the movie comes together and feels complete for the director, everybody. It's, it's exciting to kind of put all the elements together and go, oh my God, it's a movie. So that's the most exciting thing about the final mix. From my standpoint, I have to admit that what I like best is the pre-mixing. So I kind of prepare sound effects and ambience and Foley and all that stuff for the final mix and focus on that. And it's a and I, and I love kind of, that's the step where I bring every, it feels like everything's coming to life. You're adding in all the you know the movement and the footsteps and the backgrounds and the, and the and details and it feels like you're bringing it to life and you, and you kind of have it to yourself. Final Mix is, is incredibly difficult and intricate because you got so many things happening that want to happen at once. And these days, you know, the, the number of tracks and the number of options for a Final Mix, even music will show up with hundreds of inputs for the music. And it, t- it takes a lot of time to kind of sort it all through. And it, you know, it is impressive to go into a mixed age and see these boards with. You know, I point out to anyone who thinks it's incredibly complex that every slice on a mixing board, you know, that kind of vertical slice with a fader and knobs, is just duplicated, you know, two hundred times across the. So it's not like each slice does something different, but it it looks more complicated than maybe it is. But it's uh, yeah, it's complicated and getting more so.
0: You mentioned the the premix. But the final mix is like a magnifier. It's an illumination, isn't it? Where suddenly you can hear things you don't hear in the premix. But the the final mix, there can be things that are like, "Whoa, what's going
1: wrong with this?" Yeah. Well, yeah. It's just like like every step of filmmaking. Every step of filmmaking to me is, uh, "Whoa, what's wrong with this step?" <laughs> like when you thought something was going to work great and then it doesn't. It's really the rubber hits the road moment. One of the things, anyone who was into mixing, one of the things that you have to learn as a mixer is is to take things out. I always thought that mixing was misnamed because it's almost more like editing to me because the main goal of mixing is to take things out and you're adding them together in interesting ways. But what makes good mixing is like a good sculptor knowing what part of the clay to remove you 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 start pulling things out and that'll make everything more articulate and, you know half the time a mixer will say I'm putting this uh, New York ambience in and I can't hear it but it's in so if it's in and you can't hear it take it out you do find the things that find the thing that work and the things that don't work it is a magnifying glass but it's a magnifying glass because it's the way the audience is going to watch the movie that's what makes it exciting so you, there's no excuses if it works it works if it doesn't it doesn't
0: And sometimes before a sound designer sees pictures for the very first time, they have checked out the production design. Do you use production design imagery to get an early feel, the look, the taste of what a a piece might be going through before you see a single frame?
1: if I can see the production design early on I will I will race I remember going spending a lot of time on AI and that production design was spectacular and it also included a lot of design work that had predated Spielberg and it was originated by Kubrick beautiful stuff and it, it tells you something it does even before the film is shot it tells you something it tells you the tone it tells you the feel of a, of a movie I find it to be incredibly related the production designer I hardly ever work with him directly. You know you mentioned the post. Rick Carter was the production designer on that, and we did talk on that. And you know, we've got the same task, which is to take the story the movie's trying to tell and to give it a look and in my case, give it a sound. And it's they're incredibly related, and it's about feel. It's just, it's about feel. AI had a very distinctive kind of, you know, from the point of view of a child, Uh, story, fable, kind of uh, harsh but magical combination tone that was just really rich visually. And then we could pull from that and it made me clear about what kind of sounds I needed to find and create for that movie based on days that I spent just looking at the production design.
0: Gary, Skywalkers Sound is where you are talking to us today. Can you tell those that uh, don't necessarily know too much about Skywalker Sound, give us a bit of a breakdown on what is done there and perhaps some of the lesser-known things the ranch offers?
1: I started at the company before the ranch. I think George Lucas bought property little by little over the years before I started in 83. I moved out to Skywalker Ranch around 87, 88 it's a huge place. I mean, it's 5,000 plus acres. And it was a you know series of working ranches way back when. It still has cattle, has horses. It looks like a classic California ranch from a rancher who had a lot of money. What I love about it is that it's not Hollywood. I mean, Hollywood's great. LA's great. But this is... Much like you know Peter Jackson's facilities in, in New Zealand, it's it's away from traditional the traditional look of studios and filmmaking. You know backlots have their I and mean, there's a history and I love all that. But Skywalker Ranch is like a retreat, and I, it, at its best, it lets people focus on on their projects because it's just it's a naturally beautiful. It's got a lake, it's got hills, it's got redwoods, and it's nature. And the building that I work in, where Skywalker Sound is, the tech called the tech building, it was designed by George to look like an old winery. And he tells a story, or he told a story to the architects that pretend like this was built at the turn of the last century. And the son of the family went off to film school, came back and turned the old family winery into a post-production facility. So even the building has a story. So it looks like that. It looks like a building that's been worked on over the years in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and turned into a post-production facility. That's where Skywalker Ranch is. We've got you know, that's for sound editorial, uh, sound mixing, many mixing stages, Foley, and a scoring stage. We have a full-size, orchestra-sized scoring stage. So it's a, an all-in-one post-production facility. From a, as a sound guy, what I love about it is if you need, I don't know, birds or uh, you need to get horses. If I did, I did horse whispering and get horse, I can just, I can literally take a recorder, walk down the road, and there's some horses. We did backdraft and we needed the sound of fire trucks. So Skywalker Ranch has fire trucks. You say, hey, you mind taking that fire truck out and turning on the siren and running around the loop a few times? And it's nirvana for recording sounds. It's nirvana for having a peace and quiet. You can imagine if you work in sound, having peace and quiet is a useful thing. I, I remember working at Terminator 2 and looking forward to the times I could just walk around the lake and listen to nothing but red winged blackbirds. It's uh, psychologically a. Uh, I think, a very creatively inspired place to work.
0: Well, that feels like the the natural wind-up for us, Gary. Gary, Rydstrom, it's been an illuminating talk about your filmmaking career and immersing yourself across such different creative areas. And I'm looking forward to seeing what projects get awarded next by the Academy.
1: And a big thanks for sharing
0: your stories with us today on Shoot It Now.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure to talk to you about all this. It really was nice to talk to another filmmaker.
0: You've been listening to Shoot It Now with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next
1: time, have a great week.